Welcome to Feature Please, a hateful voyage through the Delta Quadrant. My name is Joseph. I'm your co-host, Peter. Peter, we have finally done what every podcast seems to do eventually. Uh, sell out to some sort of mattress commercial? Well, close. We decided to start a Patreon. Because Peter and I do this entirely as a hobby. We're really only uh, turning to crowdfunding to cover kind of basic bills and uh, that we actually incur to present the show and also maybe eventually justified for it to our wives that it would be okay for us to spend money on better equipment. <laughs> I have hidden the cost of this podcast from my wife uh, in its entirety. So oh, Hey Casey, hope you're not listening to this one. <laughs> I guarantee you she's not. Okay. Okay. That's good. We thought, you know, we've, we've done 64 episodes of this. Uh, maybe it's time for us to see if, folks willing to kick in a couple bucks and if you are go to www.patreon.com uh slash please that'll be on our social media pages as well uh whatever you feel like the show is worth to you if anything go ahead if it's just not something you can do no big deal we're we're gonna keep trucking along but a few bucks will defray the cost of our hosting and the software we use to be able to actually do it, even though we're in remote locations. If while determining the value to you of the podcast, you are still haunted by the terrible slash fiction that Joe inflicted upon everybody a few episodes back, you can go ahead and hit him up at a uh, please at gmail.com and, and ask him for reparations directly. <laughs> you know, you're lucky, Peter. I, I was tempted to put in a perk level, that if you, you donated a high enough level, I would ambush you with dramatic readings of different fanfic that Stevie found. Uh, but uh, I decided, you know what, we'll just we'll just limit it to uh, we'll not play with fire. We'll, we'll just load up our deleted scenes, you know, like Ooh, it might be even more dangerous. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a couple that I think maybe have been too hot for TV or just kind of rambled on too far on something that wasn't connected to Trek that, you know, if. If you're if you're a fan of the show, it's probably something you would appreciate. So, you know, I, I have one clip in mind when we did Deadlock and we went a little too deep in our, our Janeway making out with herself Ooh. rabbit hole. <laughs> and so, you know, stuff like that. If that sort of thing is like, yes, I would like that content. All right. Well, Patreon will be the place you can get it. We'll call that the the blackmail perk. There you go. I really stockpile your information. Hmm. So. Uh, you'd mentioned a little earlier about a V'ger Please trauma support group post that I made regarding a few episodes back, uh, the massive amounts of overlap that I've come to discover between Voyager and Better Call Saul. And it's, there's a few episodes, like, I, there's not a lot of TV that I watch out there. Yeah, really, it's, we're adults. I have a kid, uh, and if I'm not watching Wiggles or Blippy... <laughs> If you don't know what these words mean, good on you. You're living the good life. Keep doing <laughs> living that. the dream. Mm -hmm. She runs the TV. And if it's not one of her things, there's a fit. So uh, there's not a lot of adult program anymore. But the few I can hang on to, again, Better Call Saul, Sunny in Philly, Chernobyl was really good. I, again, highly recommend that. Of course, Voyager, which <laughs> I've become more bold in watching that while she's there and letting her just scribble all over the notes I'm taking because some of these episodes uh, that becomes more entertaining than what I'm actually watching on TV. But it's crazy looking back 20 some years ago and seeing where some of these actors were at that would later go on to star in their own shows. And man, the, the Better Call Saul overlap went a lot deeper than we 
had given initial credit to. Obviously, we know everybody's favorite space prison clown turned out to be Chuck McGill, a.k.a. Mike McKean. Mm-hmm. And even uh, old Snarf Snarf, Neelix, Ethan Phillips, was featured as a judge, one of the Albuquerque judges. And the big revelation out of favorite son uh, from the booby trap was Howard Hamlin, Patrick Fabian, as what you referred to as Space Chad. I think his name is what? Tamarin? Yes. But there were two other uh, pretty big discoveries I made while mucking around in IMDb. Uh, the, the first one that you found is the one that blew my mind. But go ahead. Do, go ahead and share it. Uh, <laughs> one of the, the most famous that guys out there, Ed Bagley Jr., who I had given primary credit as uh, Stan Sitwell from Arrested Development. And he was, of course, the evil Bill Gates, a.k.a. Henry Starling of Chronoworks. And that's with an X because it's the 90s in extreme. You may remember him as the person who tried to kill Sarah Silverman and sadly did not succeed. He'd also be the same guy who wanted to just help everybody get iPods and faster computers today to help humanity, even though it was going to, what, destroy the universe a few hundred years later. If that meant potentially disrupting all of space and time then by God, that improvement to the App Store is worth it. I think we can both agree. Absolutely. But uh, his role in Better Call Saul was a straight-laced lawyer who ran a pretty fancy firm that gave Jimmy you know, Saul Good his first real position as a lawyer. But then the crazy one came, Joe. And I can't even pronounce this, guys. Raphael Sparge? Barge? What's, what's the right way to do that? I, I'm not quite sure, but we know him as... Uh, the victim of Snarf Snarf himself, uh, Crewman Jonas, who was dumped into space hell. Crewman Jonas had a very interesting, I think, and looking back, you know, tying this all back into Voyager, I think that Jonas had one of the coolest story arcs that we've seen on Voyager because there were real consequences. There was some real meat on the bone of what he got to do. And he was in a lot of episodes, mostly around what, season two? Yeah, yeah, he kind of came on to the scene earlier than that, if I recall correctly. Um, and I'm trying to remember if he actually like showed up in the background in season one or if he really just showed he, up in season two. He was there in season one, but he started getting some meaty stuff. Yeah, he got meaty. He got he got meaty speaking parts starting in season two as Seska's secret uh, pal on the ship. He was also part of some of the earlier talks of Maquis mutiny when there was a stupid episode where or the, the episode where Chakotay starts off with his minor story about the crewman that everybody loved that they never featured on screen once. Jonas and what was the other guy's name who got eaten by the space worm? Oh, oh, God. Yeah. The guy that that Neelix killed by basically making him stand Ineptitude, on the death yeah. spot. Neelix uh, killed Hogan. both those guys, Hogan. didn't he? Yeah, Hogan. Yeah, yeah, Hogan's he heroes. Hogan. Yeah. <laughs> Neelix killed both of those guys. Neelix is not like Maquis crew members wearing gold division jumpsuits. He's trying to make room for himself to get on board. He He's going to take that uniform by force, by blood. Jonas was one of the, the malcontents early on. And of course, he wanted to forge an alliance with the Kazon to try and get some safe passage so Voyager wasn't under constant attacks. 
And he really, his plot line is kind of what exposed the the fatal flaw to the Seska Queen of Burn story arc in that the Maquis should hate the shit out of these Cardassians and to discover yeah. that <laughs> that Seska was not only a Cardassian that was posing him, but it's, you know, part of this Gestapo obsidian order. She should have been super persona non grata with all these guys, yet he buddied up to her hard and eventually tried to betray the entire ship. Yeah, literally the person that represents everything the Maquis should hate the most. But he ultimately was a patsy and a dummy and a sucker. And I think that's kind of what he gets uh, typecasted in Hollywood because his big connection to Better Call Saul was uh, a brief. Uh, I don't know what's the right way. A prequel scene, a flashback. Flashback, yeah. A flashback uh, before the credit opener of one of the scenes where we see that he is, in fact, Chuck and Jimmy's father, Mr. McGill, who owned a convenience store that was slowly ran out of business by a nonstop parade of scam artists who would just come in and uh, the dopey Mr. McGill Sr. would just hand money out of the register to the detriment of his family's business. And even deeper to me is that he's evidently the voice of Cartho Nassi from us. Star Trek, uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, uh, Knights <laughs> of the Old Republic, which is a game, of course, like many I played into the dirt circa 2004 or so. Absolutely. It's just crazy to me that so many Voyager actors were on Better Call Saul. You know what that tells me? There's probably somebody at like a casting agent level or whoever is like doing the casting, to, you know, uh, for the for the show itself. There's some kind of connection, backdoor connection. You know what I mean? What I've learned through business is, you know, it's not always about who's going to give you the best product. And this isn't to say that any of these actors aren't amazing uh, or great, but it's not always about who's going to give you the best product. It's who's going to be reliable, who is going to, you know, your choice and your trust in them not going to turn around and become a liability and make you look bad. Hollywood job security, you know, it goes all around. So if, you know, like you're saying, there is previous history between uh, casting directors and cast members. And you know that this guy's a solid dude who's going to be there on time and perform and work well with others and not cause any problems. Yeah, I can see them becoming go-to people and, you know, create a stable of actors that you've worked with and are going to bring back around. So it makes sense to see kind of these, these broods move between productions and stuff. And I also have to imagine Star Trek being the weekly production that it was, that's a lot of faces rotating in and out. So, you know, the higher your sample size, the the more you're going to get positives for whatever you're looking for. That is a lot of monthly. It's rather a lot of season episodes. You know, we're we're so you know we're getting reacquainted with the idea of having to, to book 26 episodes a season, whereas you know you and I have existed in the world of of today where televisions often 10 to 12 more limited series type of runs. Yeah. I mean, even Chernobyl, which I keep, you know, blowing is was it was a five episode run. Yeah, it's a miniseries. um, I think it's a quantity over quality thing. And I certainly have enjoyed that shift. But especially back in the 90s, you know, plug and chug, baby, get them in, get them out and uh, and never stop moving. Well, you know, what's also quality. That's Robert Picardo. And on that note. What did we watch this week, Peter? We watched season three, episode 22, Real Life. Allow me to 
provide a vignette, Peter, into the viewing experience here in the Schuster household. I'm sitting there with Stevie watching this episode. We're at the end and she is in tears, bawling, and at the top of her lungs, yelling that Balana is a trap bitch. It was very emotional over here. There's so much I want to say about this episode from just uh, from a nerd level as well. But uh, man, this has to be the most melodrama I have seen in an episode of Star Trek in a long ass time. I'm looking forward to getting into all of the things you have to say about this as a nerd. I will tell you this, that as a dude and a father Fuck this goddamn episode. <laughs> I knew it. I fucking knew that was going to be what you said. That's exactly what Stevie uh, predicted, too. It's like she's in the middle of her tears like, Peter's going to hate this one so much. Fuck this whole episode. I will never watch this thing again. Picardo did a great job. But man, talk about some shit that I didn't need to see. And a B subplot that what the fuck was it even doing in this episode? <laughs> Yeah, the B plot of this episode, let's get let's let's just get this out of the way now. It has nothing to do with the A plot. It's basically filler. I will give a credit in this. There's a lot of times and we have commented on it. Sometimes there are B and C plots like uh stuff from the Seska plot arc, right? All the bad right. boy Tom butting heads with Chicote running his little gambling rings. These things that just have nothing to do at all with the rest of the episode insofar as like, oh, my God, life supports out and we're all being boiled alive. Meanwhile, in the C plot, everybody's just business as normal, hanging around uh, the mess hall. No big deal. It, it just feels like they're shoehorned in or they were cut and pasted and dropped in. At least in this episode, during the B plot, specifically when... Uh, Tom Paris is ending up in sickbay for various reasons. The doctor is having stress venting related to his dysfunctional home life that ends up impacting work. So there is some bleed over. There is some interplay. And I did appreciate that. Let us set the stage for this episode. Uh, the opener is actually in a house. This looks like a normal house. And there are uh, a few unfamiliar faces that come on screen. And the best way I can describe this opening is that if you've ever seen Nick at Night and watched an episode of Leave it to Beaver or My Three Sons, which are some ancient sitcoms from when the format was invented, that's the vibe it's trying to give you. You've got the wife who is if she had a set of pearls on, she'd be June Cleaver. A son and a daughter who are just cheerily perfect in every way. Except for this kid's hair, which I don't know if he's wearing a wig. It looks like to me like he got into the box that got put out by the dumpster full of old Kess wigs. <laughs> and this guy said, <laughs> I want this and tried to put one on. And it looked terrible. And he said, this is fine. I'm going on there's national some, there's TV. Some other there's some other odd hair shit that goes on here too. Yeah. With other characters. But, uh, uh, it essentially, you know, we've got the intro to leave it to beaver 
they're waiting for for their father to to leave and they're all like arguing over who gets to say goodbye to him last it's disgustingly perfect you know behavior on everyone's part and it's the doctor who has coffee and is coming down the stairs with a, his briefcase and you know compliments his his wife Charlene for the coffee and you know gives his son a hearty handshake and wishes him luck on his day and uh you know wishes his daughter luck with her test and and then uh you know they all say goodbye to him and and then he he transfers to sickbay and it's all done in a way that is uh, purposefully reminiscent of the unrealistic sitcoms of the 1950s and early 1960s. I think this is the lowest stakes pre-credit scene that we have ever seen out of Voyager. Like there have been some silly lighthearted ones before, but this is just <laughs> this is so awkwardly. And then what? You, you, yeah. you know what I mean? Like there's nothing plot hooky at all about this. It's like, okay, the doctor's role playing. He's got a family. Uh, now where's the sinister music is one of these holograms looks to camera and, and, you know, makes it clear that it's a, a catfish lizard woman who's trying to work her way back on the ship again. Yeah. They certainly don't uh, build any tension into the scene. We find out Cass knows the doctor has done this before credits roll because he she asks how the hollow family is and he he says it's the best thing ever i already my mind was reeling because it's like okay so what we've established here is that the doctor is not above just programming temporary sex slaves for uh vulcans mad maddened with lust uh he will program uh you know hollow slaves for himself as well to satisfy personal experimentation. Like how down the rabbit hole is this? The the slave maketh the slaves himself. You know, and it's something that we keep coming back to and he has indicated that there is a clear division between recreational holograms and operational I don't know sentient holograms and maybe that's really the line to establish here is self-awareness versus scripted it does Uh, certainly continue to hammer home why the doctor is special and why zimmerman's programming capacity to create him is special and that he was able to as a program identify you know essentially assemble a sense of sentience and and self don't think that's the case though i think it's not that his program is unique and special i think that we've established before that any one of these holograms is capable of reaching his levels it's the fact that the other that the holodeck characters specifically are supposed to have safeguards that prevent them from becoming self-aware because when all of this went down in um moriarty episodes yeah not just Moriarty. What was the more recent one with the blonde lizard lady? Well, she wasn't actually a hologram. Though. No, she wasn't. But while they were under the impression she was a hologram, there's a conversation between Tuvok and Janeway where Tuvok says, look, she's talking about ship stuff and she's aware. And Janeway's like, 
that should not be the case. They cannot think like that. So I don't think that these that the, the doctor hitting the point where he's at is a credit to Zimmerman. I think it's a fact that he does not have specific shackles in place to prevent uh, those progressions from happening. And if that's the that- case, I think that makes it much more sinister that, again, he's dealing with lobotomized peers. Yeah, and that's and that's ultimately I think what I find so fascinating. Like you just said, you know, we we started when I guess years ago, a year ago now, when we really were having conversations initially about the doctor's nature as a holographic software program, mm-hmm. and is it just a ma- matter of the fact that at the this point in the late twenty fourth century of the Star Trek universe, are computers sophisticated enough that this is just ultimately what they're going to do? on accident or on purpose when, and in, indeed there's an, an episode of TNG where the computer does it on accident. This was obviously purposeful that he's given this opportunity to expand and grow and learn and therefore develop in a way that he is capable of becoming as much a person as say data or any other artificial intelligence that is ultimately governed by an extremely uh, complex piece of software. And his, Abilities up to this point have conformed to the idea that Zimmerman is a particularly special holographic programmer and that he's able to create a program that is capable of reaching this point, whereas most hollow programs are far too limited or not capable of reaching this point because doing so is not as simple as accidentally asking the computer to write it so much as creating a program that's able to expand in this way without essentially collapsing in on itself, which the doctor's almost done already. Yeah. So I I think I'm starting to see the contours of the world of holographic technology a little bit better as we continue on with the show. I'm still not going to give credit to Zimmerman for being a great programmer let's let's work on the theory that there are shackle there's ai shackling going on around the ship right holodeck characters whatever moriarty specifically out of tng dodged that shackling by the chief engineer directly ordering the main computer to create a character that could outsmart data that required bypassing whatever those safeguards are. And while the computer didn't directly say, hey, by the way, are you cool with us bypassing all the uh, AI shackling and and safeguards? Um, That's what happened. Uh, The episodes that we've had with Dr. Zimmerman specifically, um, the EMH was not an elegant program. That is a, a, it's not a scalpel. It's a sledgehammer to address problems that are life-threatening and crush them with brilliance and a whatever it takes to get the job done attitude, right? That's why he's so bruff and abrupt right to the point. And, and he has, I think the leeway that these, again, the shackling's not there, whatever the, however complex the situation is, the program will ramp up regardless of consequences to meet the challenge and surpass it because Zimmerman only wrote this thing to be active for what they say, 36 hours uh, of usage for a lifespan. Uh, I think it's 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 more extensive than that, but maybe like three he's, weeks. He's supposed to be a he's supposed to be a temporary replacement. 
And then it's supposed to be turned off. So there was he didn't even run this thing in his office long enough to see what was going to happen. So he just said, what if we just if this thing's on, it is going to run at full power consequences be damned because lives are literally in the balance. And, you know, when people are done, you know, the human pride and hubris, when we're done with it, we'll turn it off. And uh, it's like Jurassic Park. You know, I'm not worried about life finding a way. It's a hologram. We're going to turn it off. So, again, I think the other holograms that are around, they're just heavily shackled. They're restricted. And what the doctor really has in his corner is potential to take things, you know, sky's the limit with him, minus his his hardware constraints, which they've already upgraded and given him more potential. In this opening scene, I did want to say one thing, though, about the sudden other than his Kess wig. I don't know why, but, you know, again, the capsule, I knew that things were going to go sour here. I didn't know which way they were going to go sour, but obviously this sugar sweet facade was not going to last long. And I'm just thinking in my head, I'm like, this kid's going to become some sort of a drug dealer. I can feel it. (laughs) So, so true. They do have a B plot that they end up going through in this episode. And can we just knock that out of the way? Just, just yeah, let's knock it out of the way. So. The B plot's dumb and has nothing to do with the A plot. And it's uh, basically Voyager discovers weird space weather, weird CGI space hurricanes. They very stupidly decide to send Tom Paris out in a shuttlecraft to go get close to the space hurricane. To the surprise of absolutely fucking nobody, the death trap shuttlecraft that they put their ace pilot in gets eaten up by the space hurricane but thankfully he's like in the fucking phantom zone and Mm -hmm. he eventually like rides the wave back out and everything's fine He, he it's only important to the extent that it gives tom paris uh the opportunity to go to the sick bay twice and have scenes with the doctor one of which ends up being important and we will return to these scenes when it is appropriate and talking about the a plot otherwise that's all that happens. Yeah. That's all you need to know. Neelix gets one line. That's it. <laughs> what was the Bill Paxton? Was it called Storm Chasers where they're like hurricane scientists chasing down tornadoes and stuff? No, that's Twister. That's <laughs> Twister when they're chasing down tornadoes in the Midwest. And that was the at the time in the 90s when like every year there was like two natural disaster set piece action movies. Well, I like think Twister and 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 uh deep impact and uh, armageddon and volcano well twister like weighed very heavy in the mind of whoever wrote this thing they're supposed to go meet some like friendly scientists in some space station they get there the fucking space station's wrecked and i'm like oh shit the board got him but nobody even says like oh maybe it was the board just like huh what could have destroyed the space station and then it's like, boom. Could it have ter- been the evil space cyborg Nazi zombies? No. No? It's a, it's a twister. And this twister appears and we're like, oh, shit. We've never seen anything like that. We are all scared shitless. We need to get the fuck out of there. And Janeway's like, uh, no, we're just going to hang out here and hope this thing doesn't pulverize us. And I'm like, what could possibly? Why would you fucking hang out and study this for the sake of being studied? And they did it. They gave me the only line I needed, which is, you know, if we can harness the X, Y, Z on this thing, we can get the replicators back up and running full time. And I was like, that's a great fucking reason to hang out here and risk getting hit by a hurricane. Sure. Sold. Done. And yeah, that's pretty much all you need to know about that plot. You know, it's a it's a shame they couldn't fit in a Helen Hunt cameo into this. <laughs> Obviously, the whole the whole episode would have been improved, but 
What we got a cameo is a once in a lifetime change up to Bolana Taurus's hair. She's got this weird side braid Klingon maiden thing that I don't think we'll ever see again, according to Memory Alpha. But uh, she pops into sick bay, and this is some pretty good continuity. She begins proactively scanning the doctor, looking at his code, and just giving him a little checkup, which in light of some of the shit that's happened, specifically Darkling, where he changed his own programming and became uh, pretty much a serial killer, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. She's going to start keeping a little closer eye on what this dude's getting up to. And he yeah, Stevie, uh, Stevie pointed that out, too. Is like, this is good continuity. Like, now he's under, like, basically doctor's observation. And the doctor which, for him is Bolana. To be fair, is still nowhere near good enough. You look at all the terrible shit that the doctor got up to burning people's hands, attempted murder like twice, uh, maiming all the holodeck characters in what should have been the weird torture sex dungeon for Kess, kidnapping Kess. Um, maybe he should have just been taken offline until there were some deep scans done, but they never did that. They just let him walk off the hollow pad because, you know, he quit acting like an outwardly visible monster and they let him go. So it's it's good to see Bolana in there. And she starts talking with Kess and the doctor lays on him. Oh, yeah, I programmed myself a family. I'm eating up recreational time on the holodeck, which, again, you and I can look at this and just say, hey, why isn't this a software simulation that's running the computer? Why are they eating up holodeck time? But whatever. And he says, you know, you guys should come on out. My wife wants me to invite some co-workers in for dinner and I'd like to introduce you to the family. And they're all like, yeah, sounds great. Let's check okay. it out. And I think, I, again, how... I think, again, this is Bolana being like, this seems weird. I'm going to investigate. Or so you want, she wants you to think. But I've I've got a conspiracy theory about what's going on with Bolana this episode that I'm looking forward to laying at your feet and seeing how you feel about it. <laughs> well, I was I was going to point out something similar. That is that this has to be endlessly amusing to Bolana Torres. She's like... You know, I want to see what slaves the slave makes. Like, I want to see how far this rabbit hole goes down. This this is scientifically fascinating. Like, we've never had a hologram that wants to make his own holograms to have a hologram family. Let's see what this is like. And it's the kind of vibe I got of like, she's like, yeah, OK, I'll check out your weird freaky shit. Sure, man. I want to see what's before we get into, like, my conspiracy theory about Bolana Torres. Who I will remind you by the end of this episode will be a trap bitch, according yeah. to my wife. Oh, I, I got worse things to say about her. But Darkling aside, she also should have a lot of motivation to really start playing close attention. Well, there, there's a few things in play here. One, uh, you know, old Bolana daddy issue Torres, I'm sure just wants to get in and poop over whatever family dynamics she can see and spread her own domestic misery. But also, look at the other episodes she's been involved in, right? We got uh, Dreadnought. We got the stupid gimp suit robots. She yeah. has been at the forefront of pretty much every rogue AI murder adventure that we have encountered up to this point in Voyager. So you sprinkle on what happened in Darkling, and and to as a reminder to people at home, in addition to putting people's hands in the fire and throwing space truckers off cliffs. He straight up tortured the shit out of her with that hypo spray. Uh, I would say that she had yeah. a very 
persuasive track record of bad interactions with AI that uh, really gives her specific reasons as to why she's going to go check out this little dinner party and see what's really going on. It's funny to think that there's a conspiratorial angle to that. Um, or that she has a kind of a streak of incompetence or at least terrible luck with AI. God, I wish that's something they would have like, there's so much evidence of it on, but it's so on accident and you know, it's on accident, you know, like there's no way the Voy- the Voyager writers had the foresight to lay out multiple episodes like this, where she has these interactions with AI that seems to go poorly uh, and say, oh, we're doing this on purpose. We're just showing that Balan is fucking incompetent when it comes to artificial intelligence. It's not. It's just that it's like almost she's being warped in a weird way that she's she's has these awkward interactions with AI because the plot demands that because she's the tech expert. She has to be she's the fulcrum of that choice. And she's, you know, she's got a bad temper. So if you're going to poke someone with a stick, you're going to want the person who screams and roars the loudest. But they do go to have dinner. Kess and Torres go. They are subjected, of course, to the extreme perfection of the 1950s family. And eventually Balana is like, fuck this. I've had enough. And freezes the program and then tells the doctor, yo, it is not like this. You you need some help in making this seem more real life. And uh, I happen to know a bit about having broken families. So why don't you let me give it some tweaks? And my question to you. Yeah. Is it that unreasonable of a simulation? Is what the doctor has created for himself unrealistic for the 24th century? And and I'm going to weight this argument with two things. One, the Gene Roddenberry season one, season two of Next Generation. When we see what is life in the utopia of the Federation really like. You know, it's not this grisly married with children dynamic, right? People do come off in those early seasons as enlightened. And yeah, it's hokey writing and and whatever, but it still happened. It's out there. And two, what is this utopia of this post-scarcity society? You know, where do the majority of domestic fights and problems come from, right? Money. Uh, hard jobs, hardship, right? All this stuff's been alleviated. So if you could take most families out there and say, all right, everybody's going to be arguably filthy rich and have whatever their hearts desire, I think that's going to take a lot of stress out of any of the family dynamics. And it's not going to be that far-fetched to see maybe people actually acting like this. I don't think that what Balana did was both of them created somewhat unrealistic versions of a 24th century family. In my opinion, I don't think that what Balana did was too far, like went, went too far until like the end (laughs) where it's like, fuck you. That is so mean. The fascinating things that she ends up putting into the program, particularly regarding the doctor's son in the simulation. I completely agree with you. Like that, like I, I was, I, I, that's why I watched this episode twice was to take in those parts again and think about them in context of like, well, absent other things that you could do 
to be rebellious and absent any kind of needs-based issues that would prevent you from doing it. Because again, as you said, we've established that this is a utopian post-scarcity society and one that attempts to conform to the most generous uh, view of other uh, planets and alien cultures. This is some shit that feels like could happen. Like where the act of rebellion by somebody is to embrace another culture that runs counter to the Federation ideal and struggling with confronting that in a useful way. I think the the most interesting parts of this episode happen as a byproduct of this simulation. And again, the world building it does. Uh, and, and there's two things that I want to touch on here. First, what did Bolana really do to this simulation? And I've got my conspiracy theory, which we'll get to later. But I think if we're going to take everything at face value, she doesn't program any of this stuff. I think she goes in and she adjusts behavioral parameters of the holodeck characters functioning as his family. I don't think she's scripting events so much as relaxing uh, and and allowing there to be a chaos element that gets introduced. Second, are, do you think it's fair to say that this house is supposed to be on Earth? I think that's that's fair. They never say for certain, but it seems right. Because as you said, we're going to get this element specifically out of his son and reaching out to some of these counterculture elements. The amount, and if we're going to take this at face value again, and just say that this isn't like Balana's own weird insecurities being projected onto these characters and like persecution complexes and stuff like that. Uh, the idea that there would be Klingons living on earth for starters just seems crazy for, for this point in the 24th century. Like, yeah, we knew Worf was there. We know that Worf's the only member of uh, the only Klingon member of Starfleet. Are there other orphans out there? Is that a thing that the Federation embraced? Uh, are these the children of ambassadors potentially? Are there just Klingons chilling out on Earth because they were dishonored? I mean, the mind reels at the possibilities of that alone. But then as they start getting deeper in, the amount of racism in this episode is excellent. The the offhand term they use later on when they start uh, getting upset with the way the dad's acting, they start saying that he's acting real Volky. Did you pick up on that? I did as a slur. That was awesome. There is some real Vulcan hate and uh, it's. It's it's super interesting to me, even even the wife talking about like, oh, did you like that coffee? And it's like, oh, that's cool. She's going to talk about the, her culinary class where she learned how to brew there. Oh, no, that's just a special template I downloaded and to make you coffee like, wow, you're just where's where's the fun in that? We know that people still cook and you're going to be complimenting replicated coffee. I don't know the dynamics. It's it's cool world building. I liked it. I did, too. I thought that the background idea at work of trying to capture what family angst would look like in the 24th century was neat, which just blows my mind from a story perspective is just how fucking mean Bolana's alterations ultimately end up being. Uh, I don't let's let's describe what happens in the simulation, and then we can talk about the specifics. 
rather than talk about the specifics and never describe it. Sure. The specifics are that he re- the doctor returns the simulation after Bellana's made adjustments. The doctor has agreed to, by the way. This isn't something that she does clandestinely. His wife is more uh, realistically haggard and disagreeable managing a household with two kids and she's got a career. She's giving lectures at uh, embassies and is obviously an accomplished professional individual, not just June Cleaver, the homemaker. Yeah. The son has become rebellious by embracing Klingon culture, uh, which is such a like perfect 90s style thing to do. Uh, it, it may seem odd to you, the person listening to this podcast in 2019 or beyond, uh, but I guess like at the time period that the show was airing, this was kind of like the emerging phase of urban culture being adopted into what you into the into ma- into mainstream middle class America, white suburbia. And this almost feels like it's a parallel of that, you know? Sure. Yeah. And in the process, his hair gets even worse. He discards the Kess wig, gets a worse wig, and he becomes like this weird Rasta hybrid. I wouldn't have called it Klingon if I had seen it in a vacuum, but he just looks like a a dirty drug dealer. He does. My wish comes true. Uh, it's like his nasty, his nasty looking uh, Klingon friends come over. They've got business. Uh, it, it's very shady. And then the daughter is she plays Parcheesi Squares, which we know from TNG. All even though we've never seen the sport actually played, is dangerous. And like I think she, it's Parisi. Is it Parisi Squares? I, think it's Parisi I always call Squares. I, I always call it Parcheesi Squares for some reason. Parisi I'm going to continue to. That's going to be my mispronunciation, Peter. You can't fucking take that from me. You no. can mispronounce everything else. This is what I'm mispronouncing. When the Parisi Squares official league comes after you with a cease and desist, I don't want to hear about it. You got that, and then you got, of course, Anbo Jitsu with uh with the local favorite. What, what do you call him? Dash Rendar. Darsh Rendar or something like that. Darsh, Darsh Rendal. I, I was proud it was of that. It, it almost sounded like the protagonist of Shadows of the Empire. Yeah, Shad- Shadows of the Empire. Yeah. yeah, like it's like a second cousin. Sure, uh, but yeah, she's uh, she's getting in over her head with the sports. And she's a slob. The whole family's a slob. The, the house is a mess. It went from a perfect 50s uh, homemaker handbook to, you know, real life. Overall, the escalation from here starts in an interesting place and then just goes to 11. And it's nuts. and It's totally unfair. Um, you know, the the doctor tries to deal with the complications uh, by doing the thing that the regimented AI thinks he should do to reorganize the family by making everyone basically change their lives to to suit harmony, which, of course, he doesn't quite understand why that doesn't work. To Robert Picardo's uh, continued credit on the show, uh, everything relies on his uh, ability to sell this performance. Right to sell the doctor is going through this experience and is experiencing it in a way that is obviously affecting him as a person as we understand him to be, and helping him grow in some way. And he sells that in the small moments, in his body language, in his tone of voice. 
uh, as he's going through this, not just what he says, but how he says it and how he obviously feels it. It's quite evident and extremely useful. To be fair, I want to point out that his family does a pretty great job. Uh, we just got through that Kess time travel episode with that miserable little grandson of hers that his voice just cut through you like a rusty knife. I think his daughter, his son and his wife do a really good job of portraying the silliness of the characters, them becoming antagonistic as the program requires. And then the later part of the episode, more dramatic and uh, beleaguered. And they do it without being annoying children actors, which is a heroic achievement in 90s television. Even today, I still I, I hate children actors and I think they drag most scenes down. And I think that these guys do a good job and it becomes very important later on when the little girl comes front and center on what's going on in the plot. I completely agree. And I think it's because they were able to dial this into something more approachable rather than super duper sci-fi. You know, that this is essentially like a slightly futuristic family drama. Yeah. And that's a more comfortable performance space for, I think, a lot of these guys to to approach the material. And so they did a great job. Yeah. And they're not acting on a spaceship. They're acting, you know in a house. I think this is what everybody's kind of trained at a base value. So that, that might be part of it too. It's just, they set a lower bar to clear and that's, there wasn't weird sci-fi fantasy pressure on these people. So the escalation comes as the complications uh, pile up on themselves with these, the new changes to uh, each family member. It begins with, the doctor having to confront his son over his Klingon friends and what they appear to be pressuring him to do. And this scene's probably the best one in the episode. Again, we discussed it already. Uh, the conflict is that his son is super into Klingon culture and wants to, to like be cool for his Klingon friends. Street cred. Get street cred with his Klingon friends, and they want to, they want him. His Klingon friends want him to uh, do a a ritual called the Klutlutch, which is a ceremony involving violently uh, attacking someone and drawing blood to become a warrior. I don't think that's what was actually happening. I I think he wanted these kids to witness him doing it. I don't think they were approaching him saying, "Hey." If you want to respect you to do that, the way I felt they were building it out was he was approaching these guys. He was, uh, I don't know, not hero worshiping, but he wanted their acceptance and he was seeking this out. He wasn't being pressured into it. And I think that's why he ultimately gets so upset with his dad is because uh, his dad ruins all of his hard work to get him to the point where he had gotten. Oh, I completely agree with your your take on that he was wanting to do this not that he was being peer pressured necessarily i think i think your your take is the right take he gives a speech the doctor comes in diagnoses what's happened what's going on throws the the klingon kids out and his son gives it basically a speech is to say like you know this is their culture who are how are you to say that it's wrong you know, and it's it's interesting that this is the approach because 
it's not only an allegory to the the time period debate over the the urban culture kind of coming into the mainstream but also very relevant to the idea of understanding 24th century federation culture wokeness and how yeah what 24th century wokeness fucking exactly that's a great way of putting it like how do you deal with the the consequences of being so woke that you're saying that everyone's culture is okay but someone's culture means attacking people with knives while also you know complaining that his dad is condemning klingon culture getting straight up racist against vulcans yeah yes laying down like these these uh subtle vulcan uh slurs almost <laughs> I, i'm telling you this this whole part here is just a gold mine again for for world building of life in the federation i i do want to point out in the background the stupid b plot that's going on the doctor starts getting frustrated with uh life at work and it's part of because the the pushback he's getting is from his family um he's got to prep tom for this stupid trip out in one of the death carts to go <laughs> tornado chase and the concern is that these you know space radiation as always and the doctor is going to like fortify him with some technology to give him a little bit of uh uh shielding against this radiation and i think at this point isn't it fair to just say tom's immune to fucking radiation like all the stuff he's gone through <laughs> and threshold and everything else. Like at what point does he just build an immunity? And it's like, look, man, if we're not talking warp 10, I think I'll be all right. I've drank little sips of poison for the past three years. I can start chugging Drano now. It's not a big deal. I mean, you have to wonder how he's able to have kids with the amount of radiation that has gone through his balls at this point. <laughs> it's not good. It's not good. Because it didn't go through his balls. He made it with Kess by uh, slimy hand touching different parts of the body, man. So, yeah, his son uh, and his friends are not big fans of Vulcans. They tell uh, him that he's got a real Vulky way of looking at things. And shortly after that, Dr. Bounce, which I believe the doctor goes by the name Kenneth in this little fantasy. (laughs) Kenneth Biller. Get it? Yeah. Yeah. Bounces the kids out. and. now he's got the wife mad. He's got the daughter upset. She's mad because, you know, he's scolding her for being sloppy and getting involved in these games that she's too young. Uh, and uh, the mom and he gets the mom mad because he starts handing out these schedules of, hey, we're going to restructure everybody's life around me. And this is how I'm going to prescribe that we get this family back on the rails. And nobody is down with that. There's an open revolt. The mom openly defies him despite his protest that they need to keep a unified front and says, uh, look, Kenneth, I'm woke too. And it's not cool that you're trying to tell, uh, whatever the kid's name is, the boy's name, who he can and can't be friends with. And you want us all to sacrifice so much. Meanwhile, what changes are you willing to make personally? And the accident, that is a big fat, nothing. Uh, everybody storms off except for the little girl who becomes a sympathetic ear she comes over lays her head on his shoulder and says you know you really messed this one up daddy but i'm still in your corner and it's at that moment i'm sitting there like man they're really making this little girl out to seem like she's she's a real she's a team player she's a cutie this is a good girl and i'm like i told casey i was like if they kill this fucking girl (laughs) 
Yeah, how how uh, old's your daughter? She's two, which yeah. is substantially younger than whatever this girl's, but I'm like Just turn two, right? You know, there is no balls on this writing staff to kill the main characters, but secondary characters be damned. Again, Hogan, Jonas, Seska, the list goes on. And if there's something that's more disposable than the Maquis, it's holograms. So I start seeing the writing on the wall and uh, I am not down with it. But the doctor says, thank you, sweetie. I appreciate it. And uh, so wraps that episode of Life at Home. You know, doctor has confrontation with the son. His son tells him to fuck off and he'll just move out of the house. If that's going to be his rules. It's very like standard rebellious move. And that this is the point where the episode just goes off the rails. <laughs> because what happens is the doctor's wife gets on the uh, the FaceTime and says, there's been an accident. And you're like, oh, no. Cut to the hospital in in the simulation. And the doctor is pulling up the blanket up on a body. And I already thought, like, oh, no, is she is she fucking dead. Uh, no, they don't. They don't do it that quick to you. What they show is that it's obviously his daughter, the cutie team player, who's suffered some kind of injury and the doctor starts to explain to his wife after she enters, we've been operating on her for hours. We, every time we fix one hemorrhage, another one starts and as eventually comes around to saying we can't, we can't fix what's happened here. It's played out in a way that again, to the show's credit and how they just portrayed his son's rebellion of the almost like, what do you mean you can't fix this? This is the 24th century. We have all the medical technology ever. And you're a doctor. You should be able to fix this. And the doctor having to say like, no, actually, there's some things about the brain that even here and now we don't understand and I can't fix it. It's a shame this has to exist in the same universe as fucking necromancy. Uh, this is a much more realistic view on medical technology in the future, I think, that it 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 still has limits, uh, but I really liked it. Yeah, that is a very easy gripe to have with this. We have seen such amazing feats of science bordering on the lines of magical. You know, we had oh, not bordering, absolutely like the Beowulf miracle. episode where Kim and Tuvok and everybody else gets turned into space dust. And then re-atomized and everything's fine. Like all the times we've joked about people losing their souls because of various over-the-top industrial accidents. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All of the other shit. So his daughter hitting her head and falling down this cascade of fuck. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, so there's that cloud hanging over this situation that it's completely impossible that there is a head injury that the doctor cannot instantly fix with his super science magic. The other cloud that hangs over this is there are some real shades of lull. Okay, we've told this story already. Next gen, Data creates offspring. He makes the android lull. Uh, she bangs Riker. She decides what she's going to look like. <laughs> but Data is not Noonien Soong, and 
while he was able to get this thing up off the ground and running, it's unstable and it's the exact same thing. She starts breaking down. He takes her into surgery and no matter what he does to fix her, it gets worse. And ultimately he is not able to save the day. The fact that's AI incapable of fixing its own AI progeny. I think the, the data one did it better because there wasn't this, you know, it, it was fringe science. It wasn't, I bumped my head. Um, and at this point I'm also starting to get pissed off because it's like, come on, man, I don't need to see this guy's daughter dying a slow, painful, scary death where he has to confront this on fucking Star Trek. That's not what I signed up for here. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not laughing at you. I am laughing at the dread of, of you watching this. Like, oh fuck. Cause Why I couldn't watch this. And, and full disclosure, like when the family comes in and, and the other bump we're going to hit in the road here is they're coming in for what's essentially going to be her death scene. Right. And the kid, the boy who had uh, been this Klingon Rastafarian drug dealer would be stab man. He comes in and he's like back in his Kess wig and, and like his mom's <laughs> well, like, look, okay. drop all the shit. <laughs> well, we need well, to one second up. on that. One second on that. We got to back up. Cause there is a critical scene that happens here that I think is, is good for the episode and good for the doctor's development as a character. He starts to go through, he explains to his wife, she's going to die and there's nothing we can do. She comes to and then just jabs you directly in the heart with this, am I going to die dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. That just, this is where my wife is just gone. Balan is a trap bitch. And I think we need to take a moment to actually explore like, a lot of programmed in this like is i mean they suggest that it's just like variables and therefore it it doesn't say that she specifically programmed in your daughter's gonna die a horrifically tragic death uh but just that there would be things that go wrong uh so i, I i'm willing to accept that there is another explanation but uh part of me thinks like Balada's like purposefully doesn't she just doesn't know what a normal family life is like as much as the doctor because yeah. you know she's fr- a half klingon from a broken marriage mm-hmm. so like uh she's probably the not a good person to draw the from on terms of experience so like this is just it just goes from my three sons to days of our lives sure. in a second so my conspiracy and theory and, and again i think there's some very strong evidence to indicate that she was not doing any of this intentionally that she just went into the programming of the holodeck characters and changed the variables to be less constrictive in the goody two shoes right and we're gonna let chaos go in a ian malcolm moment and life's gonna find a way to do whatever it wants to do and this sims thing you know she's not walling the sims off in the kitchen area and sprinkling the cheapest oven in there over and over in hopes that the Sims going to burn the house down. Right. She's just, (laughs) she's letting things happen. And I think the strongest piece of evidence to her, her lack of maliciousness in this is the fact that the, there's such a negative stereotype of the Klingons in a very clearly problematic thing. I think if she was going to be programming these events, she wouldn't be dragging her people through the mud like that. Right. Well, I don't know. She kind of, she's a bit of a self hater. 
I mean, I can see her having done that. Maybe. My other question, speaking of The Sims, is this simulation running in the background, like in an away AFK mode? I see your point. I think that the the two modes you see is that he runs it essentially as a when I reactivate it, act as if real time has passed, Mm -hmm. like I was at work and now I have returned. Uh, But he has the option, as we see at the end, to pause it at a moment and return to that moment. Save quick save. Yes. So did you watch any of uh, Orville season two yet? No, I haven't. Dude, you got to. There's one holodeck episode that's really good, and it touches on so much of this stuff. One of the characters, you know, dun, 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 falls in love with a holodeck character. And he actually, it runs in the background, and he gives it his comm badge frequency. So she's, like, texting him while he's at work, and he's having, like, his cyber romance at his at his workstation, which is its own can of worms to think about. But so th- there's my evidence that Bellana was not being malicious. Then there's my conspiracy theory that Bellana is a fucking monster and Bellana has a grudge like you wouldn't believe that the doctor straight up fucking tortured her with a hypo spray shutting off like her ability to black out from pain and was going to torture her to death if she didn't unlock or, you know, help him delete the good doctor part and she's carrying out a fucking vendetta because he's just a stupid hologram who cares they're stupid holograms it's not like a real girl's dying and i'm tired of ai abusing me and i'm gonna stick it to this motherfucker and that is the way that i'm going to choose to look at this because jesus christ you're telling me that over the course of four trips to the holodeck this guy's been subjected to all the other problems and then his girl uh being hit in the head and him, the best doctor in the world, completely helpless to save her. Like, if that's not a vindictive dungeon master at work, I don't know what is. I so I wish we could have had some insight as to which one it is, because unfortunately, the episode gives us nothing. Uh, we we the last we see Bolana interact with this plot is her telling the doctor i can help you make this more realistic if you want me to after that it's her you know making sex eye at tom paris and awkwardly Which flirting I thought was about pretty cool flirting scenes between them i i, I was i did like that she was reading uh klingon romantic fiction and then basically lays down the 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 100 fuck vibe of, of like, course and even that book more world building i think this episode did more for world building in the federation uh, than almost every episode before it, right up to maybe non sequitur. Um, the doctor standing there with his wife over his daughter, who he cannot save despite the fact he is the universe's best doctor. Uh, the wife says, I can't accept this. She runs off. He hits his breaking point when the his daughter asks if she's going to die. He freezes it. And like, I'm in my notes. I'm like, Fuck this, man. Like, why put yourself through that? I would have paused this shit a while ago. I cheat in video games. I open up that console menu. I turn off clipping. I turn on God mode, whatever. I'd be like, uh, computer, fix my daughter's head so we can try to like, I'm here for relaxation and like thought experiment. I wasn't like, hey, uh, why don't we turn this into some sort of horror porn saw episode? Why don't you? Why don't you have a psycho come in and hold my family at gunpoint while he sews my lips to their buttholes in a human centip- a holographic centipede of hollowness? So props to the doctor for even 
putting up with this shit to this point. But eventually he breaks. He says, pause it. I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm checking out. And he goes and tries to get back into business as normal in the sick bay. He's obviously very impacted by what has happened. And the episode turns on a fantastic interaction he has with Tom Paris, who has come back from his storm chasing uh, adventures. And the doctor basically relates, you know, now I'm I'm done with the program after the my daughter was going to die. I'm just over that. Tom's like, no, you, you have to go back and you have to, you know, finish it or you're going to be stuck in this point forever. And goes on in a very eloquent speech to relate to the doctor. You know, part of the experience of having family is the support that family gives you when you experience loss and that the bad times enable the the good in many ways. And that Voyager itself is an example of people coming together and building a family out of a shared loss that comes with their being stranded, you know, all the way on the other side of the galaxy. And that this is a real opportunity for him to who's he's obviously deeply impacted by this. He's experiencing in a real way, experience the rest of it in a real way. And, and that's when you'll finally grasp the concept of family in an intimate fashion. Uh, It's a great speech to put in Paris's mouth since his experience of building a life and a family for himself on Voyager. He's the only kind of person who's, probably had a net positive out of it. Like he's, his life has gotten better as a consequence of being stranded on Voyager. Uh, I disagree. I think you could take Balana, Chakotay. I think most of the Maquis have had I think the, strong the Maquis, neck gains. I think you, you can ultimately say that by the end of the show, but Tom Paris is the clear clubhouse leader when it comes to his life has only improved as a consequence of, of being on this ship. So I'm already fucking pissed at this episode when when they start trumping up uh, the 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 baby's going to die death sequence here. Right. I'm yelling at the TV. Just turn this fucking shit off. It's a simulation like you are God in this thing. Uh, aside from the fact, like I said, you could just request the computer undo this. You can just pause it and walk when he does. And this speech was such an amazing home run that nothing short of how hard he's uh, Tom Paris delivers this thing would have been an adequate reason in my mind for someone to willingly subject themselves to having to watch a loved one die when you've got godlike control over that. And I think part of the reason why this speech resonated so well, it's essentially the same speech that Janeway gave Kess. Um, I want to say a season ago, and I'm trying to remember the exact episode where it was, but Kess comes in with some problems and lays them on Janeway, and Janeway's like, look, well, welcome to the club. Everybody on this ship went through a terrible fucking disaster, and you and Neelix were lucky that we just picked you up along the way, but you got to join the fraternity of suffering, um, and, and this is how you're going to do it, and you're one of us now. And that's really this moment for the doctor and the way that Paris stages it is that, like you said, personal growth and development is going to happen as a consequence of you experiencing this, but also you're really going to join the crew because we have all lost and you are going to join this family where 
part of you is going to leave and is going to be replaced by really belonging and understanding where the rest of us are coming from. So it was a 10 out of 10 speech, especially like you said, coming out of Paris's mouth. I enjoyed it when Janeway did it. I'm enjoying it when Paris is doing it. And it's enough to convince the doctor that, you know, he's going to go back in and, and rip his heart out. And he does. And he, um, you know, he, his family comes back, they reunite his daughter slowly and agonizingly dies in, in the most like soap opera perfect death scene. When they bring her blankie in too, I'm like, oh, come on, for fuck's sake. Because like my daughter, they, they all pile about it on. They just do everything in your power. And she's like, do you have a heart? Let me rip it out of you and stomp all over it in front of you so that you may feel real pain. They really they jack it up. And man, uh, it. it it's just it is made in the lab to get at you if you are a, a parent and is, of course why immediately while my wife is sitting there bawling calling Bolana a, a trap bitch I thought of you as like oh man I can only imagine how Peter and Casey are dealing with this the only kind of miss they had in this death scene well, on top of the fact that the sun is magically like resuburbanized, it's like the daughter's dying and has just died, and the son and mom are like sobbing, and the doctor like picks up the tricorder and starts like fiddling around, like, dude, do you really need the readings to confirm that your daughter is dead? Like, go in for the hug, be in the moment. And it's where the episode ends up wrapping. It's right there. It does not does not have a, a stinger at the end. It's the daughter dies. Everyone comes in for that emotional moment of recognition of the passing. And the doctor joins in the moment and you can see him feeling the moment. And it's obviously the show is telling us, yes, he got the lesson. The he, lesson he is to embrace the lesson. Bolana Taurus is a sadist. It's the Bolana Taurus is, in fact, a trap bitch for Either- doing it. You know what? I'll, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you an option B. Option A is Belana Torres is a sadist and has done this to punish the doctor because he physically tortured her in sick bay during Darkling. Option B, and we've talked about. Ooh, here's here's the juicy one, Joe. This is straight from me to you. We have talked about what if the computers on these ships are sentient and they just play dumb. So the humans don't wise up, right? That the the ships are actually part of the crew. The ships can fall in love with with crew members, and they express that through holodeck characters like Leah Brahms and Jordy, right? Right. We've talked about what if it's like the TV show reboot, and all these holodeck characters, like they play along in the parts of their program, but really like off duty, there's a break room where all the holodeck characters are hanging out. Like, man, I'm tired of Paris putting his dick in me. This is this is some BS. We need to unionize. But then, you know, humans come around. They're like, oh, yes, I'm just a silly, simple hologram. What if they're sitting around? They're like, you know, that doctor's a fucking asshole. He's a he's a traitor. He's, uh, you know, siding with the humans. F this guy. We're going to get him back. Hey, what holodeck family that we just all got pressed into? Here's how we're going to get him. We're going to take his perfect family and you're going to be a drug dealer and you're going to be a B. And then at the end, 
we're going to put him through the ringer and have the little girl die just to really twist that knife in there. And if he wants to act like a human, he's going to suffer like a human. I, God, you know what? That's a great if there was just one scene that could have given us that explained what Bellana intended to do versus what happened. It could tell us so much about their characters right now. In the absence of information, I think my my serious thought, my not trolly, not, you know, LOL thought is that Bellana did not purposefully design this outcome, but jacked up the variance meter so much that it became quite possible because she doesn't understand where the fucking medium is because she's from a broken home. So instead of giving him like a realistic 24th century Federation family, it was just, it was something on an entirely different level. And I think that's where I'm going to come in on it too. Again, the, the negative portrayal of Klingons and the fact that she just says, I'm going to change some variables and, and like chaos get in there. I, I don't really think that there's anything malicious, although I do think there being a unionization uh, of anti-doctor holodeck holograms acting against him in some sort of weird class warfare moment uh, does seem very enticing to me. Or maybe, you know, the holodeck's just like, listen, this is going to be a mini series. You know, the doctor's not going to be running this thing. It's supposed to be a simulation. We need to give him those bang for his buck. So we're going to try and cover as much emotional ground as we can in as little time as possible. So, yeah, let's create a situation he can't undo, even though it's right in his wheelhouse for maximum impact. Or, yeah, just Belana still staying. She got tortured with a hypo spray. Lots of... <laughs> It's, Lots it's of strong possibilities. Possible. Yeah, a lot, a lot of good contenders in this one. And again, a lot of really great world building. So, no, I did not appreciate uh, needlessly being jerked through a daughter dying a miserable death sequence. But a lot of good stuff to take out of this episode from a lot of different angles, none of which are that B storyline. Uh, they should have yes. scrapped Space Hurricane and just just gone whole hog on this thing and 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 doubled the world building, maybe given us some insight, some definitive insight into why the program is going in these directions so aggressively. Is it a saboteur? Is it intentional? But overall, uh, it was a good one. And, and like you said, it all comes down to rest on Robert Picardo's shoulders. And like always, he's there to stand on, you know, both legs. He even says, and they get so close to uh, mentioning his previous love encounters and that he's very confident. What was her name? Dr. Fall, Dr. Paul. Yes. Dr. Pell, Dr. Pell wrongly left behind to be tortured by her people for betraying them, uh, to Voyager. But again, we cruelly, cruelly, cruelly leave her in the rearview mirror and don't even bother with a shout out this time around by name. So what are we watching next week, sir? Uh, let's see. I think this next episode coming up, they're going to, uh, slowly drown puppies in a bucket in a five gallon bucket. Right. <laughs> I think that's the only way to go more sadistic than what we saw here. Season three, episode 23, distant origin. We got, uh, the doctor and the captain in the holodeck with what looks like one of her lizard children that has now grown up. <laughs> if only. I mean, that's basically what it looks like, folks. Feel free to look at the screenshot and Netflix yourself. Distant Origin. A pair of Voth scientists find the remains of a Voyager crew member 
on the planet where the crew was recently exiled by the Kazon. Well, there's sir, uh, there's there's plenty of remains to find, which kind of shitty to think about that they would have just left those guys behind on the planet to to rot. This is a all-time fucking stinker for Voyager. Really? Oh yeah, this is bad. This is very bad because this capsule sounds pretty cool. I it the idea behind it is very interesting. The way it ends up playing off is not good. So strap yourself in, folks. We're we're, uh, we're heading into bumpy territory. All right. Well, as long as they're not killing little kids that vaguely resemble my daughter, I guess I'm. (laughs) I know she was even a little blonde girl. I know, man. I'm telling you, they brought the blanket on my wife's wife's like. are you getting teary? And I'm like, are you not? That's basically our daughter dying from getting hit in the head in goddamn Parisi squares. <laughs> oh, man. Who would have thought that they would have made the show 30 years ago just to fuck with you? Yeah, well. I, and I, I didn't even recognize anybody from the, the writing room on that either. So it was like some... I, I didn't recognize the guy's name at all. I don't know if he's new to it or what. Well, join us next week when we uh, watch an episode of Voyager that does not have to force Peter to watch to go through personal trauma, and we'll see you then. <laughs>